Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. We have so many healthcare professionals now, nurses, doctors, administrators to healthcare companies and hospitals, urgent care that are going way beyond their limits, go way beyond their limits to save people, to try to help them feel as comfortable as possible when they can't be saved, and to deal with the horrible situations that are being caused by the COVID-19. But let's not forget all the other doctors and all the other patients and nurses that are dealing with other ailments that are equally as traumatizing for patients and for doctors. But this is all on the heels of a program that's that has been developed that is specific for recovery after trauma work. That's right, trauma work for healthcare professionals. Recovery after trauma work for healthcare professionals. And just to let you know, there is a book by that name available. You can get that through me or through Amazon. And also a program that is specific to healthcare professionals. That is at abusetraumarecovery.com slash Healthcare workers recovery, healthcare workers recovery. And to bring us even closer to this topic, I have asked a wonderful human being, an angel in disguise, we called him earlier today, Dr. Bernie Siegel, to help us understand what it is like to be on the inside of these kind of traumatic situations for healthcare workers, but more importantly, to speak directly to healthcare workers as to how they can recover after the horrors that they've had experienced. Dr. Bernie Siegel, thank you for being here. Thank you. An interesting thought popped into my head while you were talking. Yes. Because my middle name is Shepherd. Mm. My parents told me they have no idea how it got on my birth certificate because it was not a name that they had picked out for me. And they mm-hmm. thought the man must have heard them talking and, you know, made a mistake about what they mm-hmm. said and put mm-hmm. it in. But I really felt in many ways that, you know, as a physician, I've been a shepherd guiding the sheep, you know, with their wounds and all their troubles. And I think a lot of it as to why I was able to had to do with the kind of parenting I had, um, mm-hmm. the messages I got that I'm always repeating were do what makes you happy. In other words, follow your heart. When Mm. you're making a decision, what do you want to do? You do what feels right for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not to please others. Um, The other was, which always drove me crazy as a child, can you imagine Mm -hmm. coming home from a horrible day in school and saying, and your mother says, well, how was today? It was horrible. Everything went wrong. And she says, God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. I used to think, Ma, are you listening to me? (laughs) But after I repeat it, and she'd say the same thing, I finally would go to my bedroom and say, God, my mother is no help. You know, you got to do something. And the third (laughs) was really that we're here to help people. Mm. As crazy as this may sound, got to make a long story short, 
my father's father died of tuberculosis, leaving a wife and six children with nothing. Wow. And I heard the hell they had to go through to survive. But one day, my father, who became an executive with American Broadcasting Company and a wonderful life, I heard him say, one of the best things that ever happened to me was my father dying when I was 12 years old. Oh, so when, when he came home, I said to him, what are you talking about? I heard your interview. He said, yes, it taught me what was important about life. Hmm. Yeah, what a statement. Wow, wow. And he devoted his life to helping other people. Hmm. And I mean that. Hmm. And financially, he would loan people money, and my mother would say, what What if they don't pay you back? He said, that's okay. I'm trying to help them. Yeah, oh, hmm. boy, what I remember is I got married when I finished college and started medical school. Now, I had no money. Thank God I got some scholarships, so I didn't feel so guilty with my father paying tuition and everything. But... Uh, you know, I had no way to to pay bills and compensate. And, you know, finally I said to him one day, you know, I, I just feel so guilty. Every time I need something, I have to ask you. And he said, if I don't want to help you, I'll say no. But feel <laughs> free to ask. And that's why I keep repeating. I grew up with what I call survival behavior qualities. Uh-huh. You see, because if you want to survive an illness, yeah, I mean, one of the psychiatrists, he came up with the term immune-competent personality when he was helping AIDS patients. Uh, and one of the questions was, are you able to ask friends and family for favors when you need it? And are you able to say no if friends and family ask you for a favor? Hmm. That was just what my father said. So it's learning a survivor personality. And unfortunately, as doctors, we're not taught how to care for the entire person. Mm. And don't let me forget to talk about a drawing after I say this, because Mm. I wrote articles about my experience and sent them to a medical journal. That's about patients' dreams, drawings, um, not spontaneous remissions, but self-induced healing, you know, the things that I saw happening that I wanted other doctors to realize. And the articles from the medical journal came back saying, it's interesting, but it's inappropriate for our journal. So I thought, Mm -hmm. well, okay, I'll send it to a psychiatry journal. It came back again, and I had to laugh at what it said. Yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. (laughs) <laughs> now, yeah. that's the part that's the problem. Say, mm-hmm. Jung said it this way many, many years ago. The diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. For there, the mm-hmm. key thing is the story. For it mm-hmm. alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned think... there was a hell of a lot. Go ahead. Oh, I, 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 I think, you. yeah. <laughs> I I think that one of the things I keep hearing from the nurses and doctors that I'm in touch with about their COVID-19 treatment and their urgent and emergent rooms is that they do have such a heart for the families that have to say goodbye, 
for the patients that are just terrified and have to be uh, going through all sorts of unpredictable procedures and that the heartfelt reaction the doctors and nurses are having is a sense of horror and a sense of absolute, uh, oh, I, it just goes so deep, absolute sadness yeah. about the what they go for it. doctors is higher than the general population. Mm. Why? And this is something I went through. See, I became a surgeon. Okay. I wanted to use my hands. I'd been an artist as a kid. I like fixing things. I love people. And, you know, and even science and the human body were all fascinating. I thought, well, if I put all those personality characteristics together, the surgeon, you know, will deal with all of them. But then I realized something. You can't fix everything. Hmm. And those are the patients I remember decades later the ones who bled to mm-hmm. death in the operating room. Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. you don't remember the person who thought you were a miraculous, you know, wonderful person for what you did to them. Um, and those are in my mind. If somebody did very well, I don't remember them because you know, they did well and off they go. But the others are painful and still in my heart. But, yeah, I sought therapy. See, and that's what a lot of doctors don't do. Mm. But let me take a step back, too, before I mention that. What I learned to do and shocked me, because I drew a picture for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she Mm -hmm. had, which is what I'm going to get into, one of her questions of this outdoor scene when I showed it to her, what are you covering up? I said, what do you mean? She said, you used a white crayon to make snow on a mountain. The page is already white. You added a layer. What are you covering up? Hmm. And so I started getting patients to do drawings. And when I was speaking to a medical school, I said to all the students, draw yourself working as a doctor. And then I had them send all the pictures up to me, and it blew me away. Hmm. Except for two drawings what every student drew was him or herself sitting behind a desk with a diploma on the wall behind them. Oh, interesting. Not a single patient in the room. <clears throat> wow. One drew instruments and computers and no human being, and the other was a real doctor. He was kneeling in front of a wheelchair, his arm around the patient, handing her a tissue. Mm-hmm. See, that's what we forget. You don't have to, we can't, and you don't have to cure every disease to help a patient. You can hand mm-hmm. them a tissue. You can get them put into a room with other men, and I don't make up these stories, who can control the TV set because they're too ill to be able to manage it. So they can have friends in their room as other patients who help them have a nice day. And those are the things that we have to realize. If you don't put a person in the picture, how are you going to deal with it? See? Now, well, let's take it- when I mentioned to you, let me mention this point because I think it's so vital that I was asked, what am I covering up? I paint portraits. That was my way of relieving myself when I got home from the hospital. 
Because I learned if you do something creative that makes you lose track of time, you heal yourself and you feel so good. So all our pets and kids got tired of posing and literally ran out of the house one evening when I was coming home. (laughs) So I said, I'll put up a mirror and paint myself. And if you came in our house, you wouldn't know it's me because I painted myself in the surgical outfit, a cap, a mask, and a gown. I'm totally hidden. Mm. And what was I hiding? All the feelings that kept coming Mm. up that I couldn't deal with. I didn't know how to deal with them. My wife helped me too. I started a journal, and that's something I'd recommend for every doctor. Every day when you come home, write down what happened that you remember that day and even make notes when you're working. Hmm. And it it was full of uh, trouble and disaster. And I keep finding them in the house, you know, that uh, and rereading them. I'm rereading one now from 1996. Wow. And, and And one time I forgot to hide it. So my wife read it. She found it and read it. And she said to me, There's nothing funny in your journal. I said, my life isn't funny. What are you talking about? And she told me jokes, funny things that happened that I told them at dinner in the hospital. I mean, an example is I walked into the wrong room in the hospital. I thought it was my patient. I pulled the curtain back, and there's a naked lady sitting there who doesn't know who I am, and I'm in street clothes, and she starts shrieking, And I said, it's okay, it's okay, I'm a doctor, I'm in the wrong room. But it became a joke for all the nurses, you know, (laughs) that I walk in the wrong room and they would always tease me about that. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, uh, my wife helped me enormously to remember the nice things that happened. And sometimes they're, you know, painful and emotional I walked into a room. I did a lot of children's surgery. This child was dying of cancer. And I was making rounds. And I walked in, and the parents were in the crib with the kid together, all cuddled up sleeping. And I wrote a note. I said, what a lucky and fortunate child you have. And then I left. And as I'm walking down the hall, I thought, hey, stupid the child is dying of cancer. You write a note, what a lucky child, how fortunate. So I ran back to grab the note, thinking it would disturb them. And by that time, they were awake. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the note. I'm, you know what I wrote. And they said, we understand what you're saying. It's perfectly all right. We know what you mean. Our child is fortunate. You know, having wow. wow. And another time, I was asked by a child, you know, why am I sick with cancer and in the hospital? And I said, because it makes you beautiful. <clears throat> and I don't know where what? that came from. <laughs> huh? You know, to, to answer a child that why they have cancer, why they're in the hospital, because it makes you beautiful. And... I looked at him and was about to apologize for my stupid answer, and he was beaming. He loved it. And often my wife will say, it comes from God knows where. You know, things that just pop out of your mouth. But 
I, I really learned to treat the person and their experience. And humor, too. I mean, to me, humor was never inappropriate. I don't care if somebody, I mean, really, literally, somebody could be dying in 10 minutes, but if I make them smile before they die, they're going to feel better than if we're yeah. all there grieving and moaning and groaning. So whenever I could slip in some humor, I would definitely do it. And I call it childlike humor. You know, it's not offensive or hurting anybody. It's just having fun in the moment. And then patients aren't afraid to share things with you and talk to you. And uh, I also remember my saying to patients, I need to hug you because my heart was breaking and I felt I wanted to give them something. So I need to hug you. And after a while, I realized something. The first two words are I need, not you need a hug Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or you deserve a hug. I need. And I started saying to patients, I'm sorry that I imposed myself on you to get you to hug me. And they said, we knew you needed a hug. You didn't offend us, so we hugged you. And I found that so interesting that they could see the pain I was having, so they had no trouble restoring me. I have paintings around me right now uh, that are famous paintings of doctors, um, one is called The Doctor by Sir Luke Fildes. His child is dying and literally died. He's an artist. And it's a scene of his wife and himself and the doctor and his child. The child is lying like on a sofa. The doctor's sitting next to her thinking. See, his chin is in his hand. And that's what's in all the paintings. I'm thinking, how can I help you? You know, what can I do for you? but they're never touching the patient. Whereas the others, whether it's a nurse or a spiritual figure, are touching the human being. And even in the picture, the parents are in the background grieving. Why didn't the doctor say to them, pick up your child, give her some love, hold her? Because I've seen that restore children who are mm-hmm. close to dying, you know, and... uh that's scientific, too. When you get mm-hmm. held and touched and caressed, it changes immune function and a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to understand that. I mean, to, to learn also to accept death. It's inevitable. But I also learned to help people die. You know, when they were ready. I mean, my father, uh, you know, I mentioned what he went through. and. Um, and his lungs, he developed all kinds of problems, malignancy. Uh, they found many scars, which I'm sure were due to tuberculosis his father had and passed on to his kids. And he got to a point where he said, I need to get out of here to my mother. And mm-hmm. she said, let's help him out of bed. I said, Mom, he's talking about his body. It's so much trouble just to breathe. So she mm-hmm. said to him, Is that what you mean? He said, yeah. So she said, okay, it's all right. And I said, when do you want to die? Because I learned people had so much control over it. He said, Mm. Sunday afternoon. I said, okay, we'll have a big party. I'll tell everybody. And I got to tell you the uniqueness of the story. That morning Mm. before I went to the hospital, a voice said to me, how did your parents meet? 
I said, I don't know. The voice said, ask your mother when you get to the hospital. I walk in. I said, how did you two meet? Turns out my father lost a coin toss and had to take my mother out. And <laughs> as she began to tell the stories of their early dates, my father who's in a coma, and that's something never forget. People hear you in a coma, under anesthesia, and even when they're sleeping. So talk to them in a positive way. Tell them you love them. Tell them, you know, what you'd like them to do to help heal and those things. Give them positive images and messages like a coach would. Mm -hmm. And my father began to look so healthy, even though, as I say, he's in a coma, but I know he's hearing my mother, and he's smiling, and the color's back in his cheeks, and I thought, he's going to come out of the coma and say, I'm not dying today, this is fun. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and I was going to mm -hmm. be upset because we had got all these people to come. You know, if he doesn't die today, what are they going to say? Um, but literally, again, Consciously, he knew when the last person who said they're going to come to the, you know, say goodbye, came in the room and was announced, he took his last breath and died. Wow. And the, wow. the children in the room, remember, there are grandchildren there, too. They looked at me because they were kind of scared. We're here and somebody's going to die. But yeah. they all came over to me and said, is that what dying is like? It was so beautiful hmm. and so peaceful that they went home with a different feeling about life and death. Hmm. And that's the part I also learned that, well, let me tell you about a child. See, again, instead of feeling horrible as a doctor, child with cancer, mother's trying everything everywhere to find a treatment that will help. Child drew a picture for me, and it showed a purple balloon with her name in it at the top of the page. Uh, that, the purple, the spiritual color, it's gone out of the picture. I knew she was saying, I'm ready to die. So I said to her mother, look, she's ready to go. Why don't you take her home and stop all this treatment? Now, the other things that I find fascinating, on the page was a picture of a child with a yellow face, a color of energy. And I thought, that doesn't fit with dying. But our little friend said, that's not me, that's the kid in the next room crying. That's um, what I found so fascinating, that she knows intuitively that when you're drawing another child, you change the colors to be appropriate for the child. And then there were a bunch, there were like seven or eight pretty colorful decorations on the page, and we couldn't figure out what that meant. Um but I learned, see, from the experience. So she took her home. Her mother took her home, Patty, and um, she called me about eight days later and said, Bernie, today is my birthday. My daughter woke up and said, Mom, I'm dying today as a gift to you to free you from all your trouble. Oh, my goodness. And that picture hangs in my hallway um, in my house. I mean, it's just, you mm. know, you know the right things. And because of all the things I did at the, the operating room, uh, they made a coloring book for kids. 
to fill out when they came in. Hmm. And the kids, again, would show that they knew the operating room. They would draw pictures of the operating room they'd never been in. Um, One kid, even though it said you'll meet an anesthesiologist who's wearing an outfit that looks like green pajamas, he drew him in red. Even though it said Hmm. on the page he's wearing green. And the anesthesiologist hmm. said to me, yes, his mother has muscular dystrophy. He could have an adverse reaction to muscle relaxants and have a very, you know, even die of it. Um, and so I said, look at the last page. If he draws himself in purple, I'm sending him home. But the last page was red and black. You know, I'm hurting. I'm unhappy. So to get back to doctors, I'd say, learn. Draw yourself working as a doctor. What does it look like? And then improve the things that don't look right to you. You know, caring for people. Not seeing your treatment as poison, you see. Um, Like the commercials on television, you know, you say, here, this is good for you and your headache, but it could sterilize you, uh, cause cancer, (laughs) give you a heart attack. You know what I mean? You say, yeah, well, who the hell, I'd rather have a headache. Yeah. And so, again, speak to people in a positive way. I, I called it deceiving people into health. Hmm. I lied to patients because I knew they believed in me and had faith in me. So I told them things that weren't true. Now, you'd say, well, not malpractice. No, not when it's for their benefit. Hmm. And the example I always use is you take an alcohol sponge <clears throat> and you say to a child, oh, boy, you're lucky. These are new sponges. Not only do they clean your skin where we're going to put the needle, but they numb your skin. So you're not going to feel the needle. Eighty hmm. percent <laughs> of the kids would look up and say, Oh, boy, thank you. That was so good. Why don't the other doctors do that? <laughs> um, and I taught parents how to lie to their children. You know, it's really hypnotic in a sense because I'd say get some vitamins, and when your child has a certain symptom, say, oh, here's the pill that helps will help you. And you put a, a new label on the vitamins, say, for nausea or for whatever, And the kid will take it, and yeah, 80% of the time it works fine because they believe in their parents and their doctor. So give people hope. Uh, I was, all these doctors who said to me, you're giving your patients false hope and you're blaming them for being sick. I said, what are you talking about? Well, you tell them, they could survive, they'll do well, and you look at the statistics, the odds, uh, you're lying about that. Hmm. I said, false hope is an oxymoron. You can't have false hope. If you have right. hope, it's real. Yep. So I didn't say to people, you'll definitely get better, but I'd let them know, you have a chance of recovering and getting better. And... My patients literally at the hospital began to be called Siegel's crazy patients Hmm. because of how I had Hmm. influenced them. Even when they were under anesthesia, I talked to my patients. And at first, the anesthesiologist thought I was nuts, and I played music in the operating room. 
What's the point? We're anesthetized. But people woke up remembering things that were said in during the operation. Yes. And so I knew they were hearing, and I learned something, too, by saying at the end, you wake up comfortable, thirsty, and hungry. Mm. The nurses started asking me about my patients being a problem. I said, what do you mean? They refuse pain medication. I said, never occur to you they don't hurt? The other part that became a problem mm. was to wake up hungry. And one of my patients came in and said, I'm gaining weight. And your nurse said, you tell people they're going to wake up hungry. I said, yeah, but I'll have to stop that. So I made it, you'll wake up hungry, but you won't finish everything on your plate. Then the weight gains. <laughs> but it impressed me that it, mm-hmm. it not only lasted in the hospital, but people took it home with them, you know, from mm-hmm. my voice. And we need to mm-hmm. be trained about how to interact with and care for people and why we are a doctor. One of the things that one of our kids did in school, he came home with this canvas that I still have hanging on the wall. If you write the word words down, words, 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 with no space between each word, it becomes swords, 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 swords. Yeah. When he walked in with that, it blew my mind. It was really therapy for me. I realized... Mm-hmm. With a scalpel or my words, I can have a powerful effect. I can kill or cure with both things. So Mm. I always gave people hope because it's not about statistics. And the other thing, as I began to work with cancer patients to try, well, this, see, this again is not what you taught in medical school. I went to a workshop trying to learn more things about helping patients, and my patients were there. And they were all mm. sitting with me, not like an office set up. And this mm. one young woman, and I keep saying I wish I could find her, she changed my life with this statement. You're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. That changed my life. Mm. I thought, you see, instead of feeling like a failure, I can't cure everything. I can't fix everything but I could help people to live with Mm -hmm. whatever their situation was. Mm -hmm. And boy, did that make a difference for me. Mm -hmm. But what did I also learn? The majority of people don't want to work at living. They Mm -hmm. are afraid of failing. Because I sent 100 Mm -hmm. letters to people with cancer saying, you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. I expected hundreds of people to show up because it was supposed to be just for our patients, and my secretary forgot to put that in the letter. So I I was a nervous wreck. What the hell am I going to do with all these people? And 12 women appeared. Wow. And I realized, you don't know the people you're taking care of. And that's why it wasn't blaming them to say, what's going on in your life the last 6, 12 months? See, I lost my job. I got a divorce. My child died. Um, oftentimes there was a significant loss or change and that's what made them vulnerable. And that's not blaming them. But Monday morning we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses because of people, how people feel about Monday. 
You can study actors. I don't make up any of these stories. They've been done. And give them a tragedy to perform and a comedy to perform and draw their blood while they're acting. And their immune function, stress hormone levels all change based on whether they're in a comedy or a tragedy. Hmm. And that's why my patients became known as Siegel's Crazy Patients. I'll give you one true story so you'll know. There's an oncology group right in the same building next to my office. And after I started the support groups, they said, we'd like you to come to our office. We want to talk to you. I thought, oh, they're going to tell me I'm a wonderful guy for doing this. And I, <laughs> yeah, I got there, and the four of them are sitting there saying, "You don't know what the hell you're doing. You're not a psychiatrist. You could hurt these people. They end up dying faster." They yelled at me for a couple of hours, and finally they said to me, "How come you're not answering or saying anything?" And I said, "Because I thought you were going to tell me what a wonderful person I am helping cancer patients." And we all busted out laughing. And, see, we became close friends then Mm. because Mm. we got to know each other. So I loved referring my patients to them. And Mm. my father-in-law was a quadriplegic from an injury. Mm. Nurse's aide says to me, who was taking care of him in our house, "Um, I told my cousin to come up here. Her doctor told her she has... uh, two months to live, and there's no point in going to Duke to get treatment. It'll just make her feel sick. So go home and enjoy your last two months. So I told her, come up here, because you make people well all the time. Hmm. I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? Anyway, the woman shows up. She had leukemia. So I explained Hmm. to her, I'm a surgeon. I will get my oncologist friend to see you. And I admitted her to the hospital, and he came over. And I sat with her on the bed, and we talked and hugged her and everything. And then he came over, and he sent me a note. Bernie, I agree with her doctor. She's got about two months to live. But I know you and your crazy patients, Hmm. so I'll give her hope. Hmm. And then every week she would go to his office for chemo, and I would get a note from him. Started out with doing well then went to doing very well. And by the sixth week, the note said, in complete remission, no sign of cancer. Mm -hmm. And she went home to drive her doctor crazy Mm because she didn't die when she was supposed to. Um, Mm -hmm. But you see, that's what made them keep working with me, you know, and not Mm -hmm. start yelling at me for lying and giving false hope. And the other was the ability of these patients to not have side effects or problems. I'll give you two examples. One is that the radiation therapist said, I thought the machine was broken. Um, And then he said, I saw your name in the chart. And I realized it's a crazy patient. So he goes to her and he said, how come you have no reaction to the radiation? She said, I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. Hmm. Then the other side of the coin was a radiation therapist who called me and said, I feel awful. I checked the machine that was repaired a month ago, and there's no radioactive material in it. So I haven't treated anybody for a month. Oh, my goodness. Did it ever occur to you why you didn't know you weren't treating people? 
It's because they all acted as if they were. He almost mm-hmm. fainted. Mm-hmm. Because that's what was happening. You see, that people mm-hmm. believed they were being treated and literally even had tumor shrinking as well as red skin and so forth, you know, side effects. And that's the part I, I realized. The mind is so incredibly important mm-hmm. in your response to treatment. So again, draw yourself in the operating room. It's mm-hmm. a black box. You're lying there alone on the table. Nobody there. Don't go. But I want to have surgery. Then spend the week picturing yourself going to the operating room four or five times a day, having a wonderful result, waking up comfortable, everything's fine. And a week later, she drew a new picture for me, which is beautiful. I said, go ahead. You see? So, and, and then there are people who draw the devil giving them poison as the doctor is their chemotherapy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You see? And others literally draw it as an intravenous coming from God beautiful golden, you know, color in in the Mm -hmm. IV line. And Mm -hmm. I don't worry about them. See, and why doctors need to know patients. Conscientious objector is in our group. He goes for chemotherapy. He walks in and the doctor, instead of knowing the patient, says, Dave, I'm going to kill your cancer. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. And Dave said, I don't kill anything. And he turned and walked out of the office. Hmm. Now, what if he said, Dave, I'm going to make you well? Yeah. What a difference. And Dave Mm -hmm. didn't go home to die. He lived for like 12 years doing all kinds of alternatives. But we need to learn what it means to the patient. And I hate this battle stuff. You know, we got to fight a war and kill the cancer. Mm -hmm. Um no, we need to heal our lives and our bodies. Because mm-hmm. I've seen people get well when they were fighting it, you know, trying to attack it uh, in their body with images, uh, you know, their immune system being animals that would chew it up and, eat, and nothing. And then the woman said one day, suddenly the tumor became a block of ice and I started melting it with God's mm-hmm. light. Wow. It melted away. It's not on my mm-hmm. x ray anymore. She had a mm-hmm. chest tumor. So, you know, it's what's right for the person. I mean, the kids often don't mind airplanes blasting the tumor, you know, shooting right. at it. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's like games for them. But mm-hmm. you have to know what feels right for mm-hmm. the person. So I've had mm-hmm. people leave their troubles to God and have their cancer go away. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who left the office, went home. To die, um, and then show up months later with no sign of cancer, and I learned to say, "How come you didn't die when you were supposed to?" And they always <laughs> had a story about mm. their life. Mm. Yeah, I never predicted to people and said, "This is how much time you have. This is what's going to happen." I would let them know when you get ready to go, you get tired of life. I can help you, and it won't be hard at all to. Go ahead and die, mm. you know, surrounded by loved ones or whenever you want. Um, and they knew that they could always count on me to do what felt right for them, mm. whether it was a treatment. And I never, you know, put down their choices because I've learned also that people travel halfway around the world for some alternative therapy. I never know if the alternative therapy is any good or it's just a person. 
because if they're willing to go halfway around the planet to get some crazy treatment, um, look at their personality, what they're willing to do. So I know they'll do well. Um, but as I said, whether it's the treatment or not, I don't know. Um, because if you believe in something, it's more likely to help you than if you don't. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's helping them make choices. And one other thing that is interesting, um, I always say read fiction to learn the truth. Because fiction mm-hmm. writers write mm-hmm. the truth but create mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. And in Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, he has one of the men come into the ward, says, look, I found this book in the medical library. It says here there are cases of self-induced healing, not recovery through treatment, but actual healing. And it was as though self-induced healing flooded out of the great open book like a rainbow-colored butterfly. Wow. They all held up their foreheads and cheeks for its healing touch as it flew past. Now, Mm. Solzhenitsyn had cancer, so intuitively he knows what he's writing because doctors will, you know, see you get well when you're not supposed to. What do they say? Oh, you had a spontaneous remission. That was lucky. Hey, Mm. dumbbell, why don't you say to the patient, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? Mm. Now, I I mean, don't let me forget to go back to Solzhenitsyn, but I know people, again, who show up in the office or I've called up to say, why wasn't I invited to the funeral this is a guy who moved out to Colorado to die in the mountains. And a year later, I thought, why didn't the family call me about him? So I called to say to them, I told you I wanted to come to the funeral. He answered the phone. And he said, you're so beautiful here, I forgot to die. And I bursted out laughing. I mean, and I have letters from people that say, I didn't die, now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? Because... You know, they started doing what they wanted to do before they died. Mm. Yeah, a landscaper that I operated on, I said, you need more treatment. He said, it's springtime. I'm going to go home and make the world beautiful, so when I die, I leave a beautiful world. Mm. He's not trying not to die at all. And six years later, he came into the office. I have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business. Uh-huh. He became my therapist because... Uh-huh. I saw how beautiful the world was by walking around with John mm. and looking at life. And he lived mm. in 91. Um, yeah, I even spoke at their 70th anniversary of he and his wife because I had to tell people how he became my therapist and what a beautiful couple they were living, not trying not to die, but living. And mm. so... You know, I learned that from people, too. I try to do what makes me happy and, mm-hmm. and teach people. You know, be a coach, what I call a love a love warrior, that you use love as your weapon. And when people are driving you nuts, you say, I love you. And also, when you have decisions to make, you pay attention to what it feels like to do it. Mm-hmm. That you're not submissive. See, nurses need help. You ask nurses this question. Family or a friend asks you to do a favor for them you do not want to do. What do you tell them? Hmm. 95% of nurses say, I would do it. I would do it. Anyway. Yeah, 95% say, I Hmm. would do it. And I say, that's not a a healthy answer. 
then you're not taking care of yourself. So you need to be able to ask for help when you need it and say no when you don't want to do something. That's why I say the psychiatrists understand it better than the oncologists because they see, you know, when people come to them with life-threatening illnesses to get their life in order and then they see them get it in order and not die, they realize that has a lot to do with why they didn't die when they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Because they organized their life, paid attention to what felt right, and so forth. And we need more help in medical school. Mm-hmm. Yes, we need to draw pictures of ourselves as a doctor. We need to fill out a form that says, why do you want to be a doctor? Mm-hmm. And then point out the healthy and unhealthy reasons that they're putting down and how that... And why pick a certain specialty? I think it was anesthesiology had the highest suicide rate of specialty. And think about it. Why do you want to be an anesthesiologist? You're putting someone to sleep. You're not talking to a patient. Um, What are you doing? Why this? And And I'm not criticizing anesthesiologists. I mean, I, as a surgeon, I know some wonderful guys, you know, who work with me and put up with my craziness and, uh, And uh, it was really, you know, they were human beings, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there were others who were just giving drugs, knocking people out. And, uh, yeah, I was, one was having trouble doing a spinal type epidural anesthesia. And I was standing with my hands on the patient, praying and visualizing her being successful. So I was Mm -hmm. silent. Mm -hmm. And she looked up at me and said, I could feel your hostility because I was having trouble. And I I thought, how sad that is. Mm -hmm. I'm praying for you and you're feeling hostility. Mm -hmm. You know, what's in her mind? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I would have fun with patients. If it were Christmas Mm -hmm. time, I'd say, hey, if I get you home, you buy me a present. If I don't, Mm -hmm. I'll get you a gift. You know what I mean? It's it just loosen them up mm-hmm. uh, to, to to that. And mm-hmm. and let me tell you one nurse's story. See, because this is what kills people too. They had a dying room in her hospital. Mm-hmm. What that meant was, if people were really sick, they got put into that room. You know, near the nurses' mm-hmm. station and so forth. But the patients yeah. ended up calling it the dying room because they knew if you got put in there, your chance of making it is practically zero. Oh wow! But this one fellow who was in the dying room, he couldn't control the TV. He, you know, he was really disabled. So she took him out and put him in a room with three other guys, and they would keep him happy you know, turning on the TV, picking a channel, doing things for him. And then the nurse went on vacation. So she came back, walked into that room to see how he was doing, and the bed was empty. So she thought, oh, Mm -hmm. he's dead. Then as she's going around, she went into the dying room, and there he is lying in one of the beds. And he sees her. He said, oh, they put me back in here, but it hasn't worked. Oh, meaning I didn't die. (laughs) So she burst out laughing and took him and put him back in the other room with the guys so Mm. he can, you know, enjoy the day. Mm. But I saw this truthfully at at 
hospital when I was being trained. Uh, we had an enormous ward down in Bellevue, um, like six rows of beds. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sicker people got, the closer they were put to the nurse's desk in the front of the room. And I realized that nurses are killing people. Yes, they want to be near them, but nobody makes it out of that those like four or five beds that were right there in front of the nurses. Mm-hmm. You got put in that bed and it was, you're going to die. That's why we're here. You know, you're here. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't listen to me. I'm just a medical student. But uh, about not doing that anymore. But it, mm-hmm. it was incredible. Now, mm-hmm. I, I may have been, you know, on that rotation for a month or six weeks. Not one single patient who was put in one of those beds ever recovered and got moved back out of it again. Wow. So, again, it's, you know, giving the hope, being there. It's more like, how can I help you? Um, hmm. Then here's a pill. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that we need to treat the, treat the experience. That's my hmm. word. Not the diagnosis, but hmm. treat the experience. And let me give you one more helping. I say to people, what are you experiencing? Somebody with cancer said failure. Mm. I said, how does that fit your life? Well, my body has failed me. I have cancer. I said, that's not my question. How does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must oh, dear. failure as a child. Oh. See, now I'm treating her, and there's therapy involved. Mm-hmm. Another woman, and I don't make up any of these stories. I was in a neurologist's office to talk to him. He's a friend. And um, the nurse said, Shh, keep your voice down. I said, what is it? There's a woman in the next room in such severe pain due to migraine headaches that we're waiting for her to get a ride to the hospital. So please speak softly. So instead of talking to my neurologist some more, I went into her room and I said, look, let me do a meditation with you to relieve some of the pain, try to make you feel a little better. So I took her through a meditation Hmm. and part of the meditation was to say to her, what does the pain feel like? And she said, pressure. I said, all right, Hmm. we'll work at relieving the pressure in your life. Now, if she were my patient, I would have said, what is the pressure in your life, too? Right, but, right. I mean, I didn't want to intrude, uh, so I just talked about it as something will relieve in her life. And we went on for 10 or 15 minutes in a meditation. Then I went out back to my neurologist friend, and a few minutes later, the nurse came in. Her headache is gone. She's going home to work on her marriage. Wow. (laughs) And there you have it. (laughs) Yeah. And what a Mm -hmm. gift, you know, that Mm -hmm. she can understand something about what's going on in her life. Oh, and many years ago, I I mean, personally, even helps me. I've had vertigo for, because as a kid, I had all kinds of ear problems, infections, et cetera. And I had vertigo as a big problem. And one day, you know, if you're dizzy, what are you going to do? You have to lie down. You have to take it easy. So one day I stand up and I feel the vertigo and I said, hey, dumbbell, why don't you do what you tell your patients to do? Describe it. What are you experiencing? 
I said, the world is spinning around. And I said, that's right. You're doing too damn many things. You need to take it easy. And it's mm-hmm. a wonderful symptom. It makes you lie down and rest. Yeah. Because you can't go flying, lecturing, and if you're dizzy. And so, yeah, I, I responded to my own therapy, and it helped enormously. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean I might not not necessarily take a pill, but there are certain exercises you can do to help vertigo. You know what I mean? So it's combining everything. Yeah. So it's Mm -hmm. not just discarding medicine, but it's using it and your own needs and life. Mm -hmm. And then everything resolves and it's, it's a hell of a lot better. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not about curing everything, but helping people live with what they're experiencing. And and that's what I'm trying to help people do, live with the experience, mm-hmm. learn from it, and mm-hmm. love themselves. You know, doctors could do this, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just thinking that. Put their, their pictures of themselves as children around the house in their office. And when people say, oh, who's that cute kid? You could say, that's me. And then they'll laugh. But it's to give yourself that love, as I said, and let the patients hug you. Um, and let them know when your birthday is. I tell patients, find out when your doctor's birthday is and give them a gift. They'll never Mm. forget you after that. Mm. And the other is, this is really important if you want to find a good doctor, go into your doctor and say, are you ever criticized by patients, nurses, or family? And some of them look at you like, what? Why would I be criticized? Mm. Because if you don't treat their experience, they're not taking care of them. And Mm -hmm. so they may say to you, you didn't listen to me. Yeah, I've had patients say to me, well, see, I used to have a lot of students work with me. And one of them said to me, you didn't answer her question. This was a lady in the hospital. So I said, well, we'll go back in the room. See, now how many doctors would do that? So I went back in and I said, he told me I didn't answer your question. She said, yeah, he's right. So we sat there, and I listened to her again and got it right, Mm. you see. Beautiful. So when a patient says to you, you didn't answer my question, you didn't respond to my needs, and you say, you're the only one who ever complained, it's not me, it's you, Mm. then that's, I'd say, get rid of that doctor. Mm. But if you said to a doctor, as a matter of fact, at a big party for this doctor, um, which he invited all his patients to, I stood up to speak about him, and I said, um, we need to ask doctors, are you ever criticized by patients, family, or nurses? And people looked at me like, you're criticizing him? He's a wonderful man. I said, no, I'm not criticizing him, because I know his answer will be yes. I am criticized by nurses, family, and patients, because he listens, he cares, and he changes what he's doing. Hmm. But when a doctor says to you, no, I'm never criticized, it's because the patients know it's a waste of time. Hmm. He always makes an excuse. Every time I say, you know, uh, you didn't answer my question or I had to wait such a long time for you or uh, I didn't feel good being here, um, they make an excuse. It's you, not me. It's you. Hmm. You're the only one who's ever said that. And I always say that even 
if it's somebody working on my house. Because I always remember this guy worked on the roof, and then it was leaking. So I called him. I said, the roof is leaking. You need to come back. He said, your house is a problem. Oh, dear. I said, it wasn't until you came here and touched it. So never Mm -hmm. mind. Don't come back. You see, that because I don't want him back again, always telling me it's my house. Right. And I'd have the same feeling, see, with the doctor. If I complain and he says, that's you, nobody else ever complains, then I'm going to another doctor who will mm-hmm. listen to me and help me understand what's going on mm-hmm. and how I'm feeling and what they're doing and, you know, bring us together as a team. Because mm-hmm. when I get back to saying, I need to hug you, I realized the first two words were, I need. And I started yeah. apologizing mm-hmm. to the patients, saying, I'm sorry, I used to have you hug me all the time. And they said, we knew you needed it. You didn't have to apologize. Hmm. You know that. Hmm. And one more thing. I keep thinking of people. Um, Beautiful. Women live longer than men with the same cancers. And it's hmm. not about their hormones, as one doctor wrote in an article. See, I thought, there's a guy who doesn't know people. He's saying women must live longer with a certain with malignant melanoma because of their female hormones. And hmm. I said, men who have malignant melanoma and are married live longer than single men. So are they helped by sleeping with female hormones? You know, I mean, it's such a stupid conclusion. But it's about relationships because I've had these quotes in my office. I can't die until they're all married and out of the house. Okay? That was a woman with nine kids. Oh, boy. She lived 20 years, and then the cancer came back when the last kid left home. Now, what blew my mind, but I recently read an article that that can happen, that you can keep suppressing the cancer for 20 years and have it come back, you know, when her life changed and it's okay to die now. Um, It it was such a shock to have that happen. But Mm -hmm. the men will say, sitting with wife and children in the office to discuss the treatment, um, there's no point in living. I said, what are you talking about? I can't work anymore. What's the point in living? And again, I keep saying, I don't make these things up. They happened. And I say, excuse me, turn your head to the left. You'll see your wife and three children. I think they're a good reason for you to keep living. Hmm. But again, it's why women outlive men with the same relationships. Hmm. And one woman, I kept her living and blew the minds of her kids, who were adults, they came in and said, our mother has cancer and needs treatment now. She has 12 cats. Her house stinks. We don't visit her. We're going to get rid of the cats, clean the house, and then we'll start Mm. treatment. I said, Mm. no. Mm. What do you mean, no? I said, if you get rid of the cats, your mother's dead. Mm. Go and clean her house and tell her no one wants 12 cats then she can't die. And boy, Hmm. were they grateful to me. Wow. Because they knew how true what I said was when they saw her and how she reacted at home, you know. And so they went in, cleaned, you know, the litter and the house and everything else. Because 12 Hmm. cats, oh, I have pets all the time. But 12 cats, Mm -hmm. I've been up to four at a time. 
and that's oh, a handful. But Messy, um, yes. you imagine twelve cats, yeah. And um, but they would come in for years thanking me about what I said to them. Mm-hmm. So again, it's giving people a will to live and a reason to live, mm-hmm. and not, you know, I can't work anymore. What's the point in living? Mm-hmm. It is to help your family, love your kids, and and be with them. And the people who are lovers end up living a hell of a lot longer than the people who aren't. Even the ones helping other patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they're all there for chemo, um, if you're walking around trying to make everybody else feel good, I've got to tell you one more story. I don't know how much more time you have. But one of our I'm kids... I'm not you. <laughs> all right. One of our kids was... Um, I mean, they were all very bright. We have five kids. And he just didn't like sitting at home when he had a day off, so I took him to the hospital with me. They all, all of our five kids, have been in the operating room seeing me working. Oh, beautiful. I would sneak them in at nights and on weekends um, because people knew I wasn't normal, so they'd let me bring my kids in because I wanted them to know why I was having the trouble. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Covering up my feelings and and just... Mm -hmm how I would feel when I'd come home every day from the office and that sort of stuff. And none of our kids, it's interesting, two are lawyers. And I think if I were a happy doctor, they would be doctors today. But none of them chose to talk about being a doctor. Because I I think when they were growing up making decisions, they could see the pain I was in. Uh. But anyway, this one, I said, come on to the hospital with me and, uh, you know, we'll keep you busy. You'll help the nurses. So we took him to the operating room. I put him in a scrub suit and um, let him hang around with the nurses and help them out. And so when a new patient would come in, the nurses would say, Stephen, go over and get the records. And he'd run over to their gurney, their you know stretcher they were rolling on, and um, he would reach up and take the charts uh, that were there on the you know, with the patient and go back to the nurse. And you'd see the look on the patient's face. Can you imagine going in the operating room and having a kid, maybe he was eight years old (laughs) or so, um, you know, walk over and you'd say, what? What's he doing here? He's not going to touch me. He's not going to do anything to me, is he? Um, uh, um, But then they'd realize, no, it's a kid. He's helping. And then they'd bust out laughing you know, mm-hmm. get over the panic. Well, the chief of surgery calls me. Uh-oh. Said, Bernie, a child does not belong in the operating room. You cannot do this. I said, do me a favor. What? Meet me in the operating room. Mm-hmm. I want to show you something. Beautiful. So he came down. name is John. came down and said, now stand here with me in the door to the locker room for the surgeons and we did and Stephen's there at the desk with the nurses and in comes a patient and he goes running over to grab the chart and you could see the patient's eyes bulge and then bust out in a big smile and John turned the chief of surgery and walked away Mm. and I always respected him so much Mm. for that he saw what a benefit that kid had in the operating room. Wow. Getting people to smile 
you know, to feel differently about the experience. Yeah. And uh, I don't think many surgeons, many chiefs of surgery would have done what he did. But, uh, boy, I, I felt so good about that. And, uh, again, I've, I speak to a lot of kids. And one of the things, in a sense, what doctors can do, a suicidal young lady called me my, her CD. She said, you're my CD. I said, what the hell are you talking about? She said, you're my chosen dad. Uh, she was suicidal. I mm. told her I love her, and she's alive. And right mm. here, you know, as I said that, happy Father's Day to my bonus dad. You know, last mm. week, uh, Sunday, was Father's mm. Day. And this is somebody who called me, and I'll tell you how many years ago in a minute, but... My answering machine had, do you have Jack Kevorkian's phone number? I want to be dead. I've been sexually abused. I have a brain tumor. I want to be dead. Can you help me? I called her up. I said, you're a child of God. I love you. I'll be your chosen father. Hmm. And she didn't commit suicide. Wow. And this card, Happy Father's Day. I love my bonus dad instead of the chosen. Um hmm. She said, this is 30 years since that phone call. Wow. I believe it. Wow. We still are in contact. I still get Father's Day cards from her before, her name is Becky, before I get them from our five children. Um, mm. And there's just so much love between the two of us. And I've met her. She's in Texas. When I was down there, mm. I made sure to go and meet her. And, uh, you know, she's a part of my life and family. Mm. Mm-hmm. and uh, what it means to me. And that's the mm-hmm. thing also for doctors to realize. You can keep saying to your patients, I need a hug. I need you to help me. I need... Don't be afraid to say that mm-hmm. you need something. Mm-hmm. And let people give it to you. Let mm-hmm. them reparent you too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as one oh. lawyer said, just to talk about professionals, he said, while learning to think... I almost forgot how to feel. Mm. And that's what we all need to do. That's why having two sons who are lawyers, mm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're always telling you the right thing to do. You know what I mean? Um, but when you, even as a, whether you're a lawyer, doctor, or plumber, if you take care of the people, we all have troubles. And here's one solution, and then I think I'll try to stop talking. But you see, see, I, I'm doing the talking, but I'm not creating the talk. I have an angel mm-hmm. named George. He mm-hmm. tells me what to say. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was in Stop and Shop, and a woman poked me in the back and said, you're the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. She had a bandage over her eye. So Crazy Siegel said, because I know what happened. I have an abusive spouse also. And mm. then she looked at me like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with him? Um, mm. But I thought that was so interesting that everybody was talking to her because she had a visible wound. So I'd say that to doctors, too. But you want to have some fun and learn more? Put a bandage over your hand, your forehead, you know, someplace that it's not in the way and watch what patients tell you because now you have a problem. 
or tell them you were in the operating room or you had to have surgery over the weekend or something. You know, when I shaved my head in 1970, everybody thought, He's disturbed. He's got a problem because <laughs> the hair was down to your shoulders in those days. Mm-hmm. And it had more to do with uncovering spirituality. I learned that from reading Jung. But mm-hmm. everybody in the hospital talked to me because they knew I'm a screwed up, crazy person. <laughs> and so they can talk to me. Mm-hmm. So patients lined up in the hallway who weren't my patients. Nurses got on the line to tell me their troubles. It was amazing. And I also started giving awards to hospital staff. This is something I'd suggest all the doctors to do. You see a nurse or an aide acting in a kind, caring way, walk over to them and say, what's your name? And they think, what the hell did I do? So they tell you their name. Then get them a gift with their name on it. Hmm. I would bring them a pin with their name on it with a rainbow, um, Hmm. like the sky with a rainbow on it. Yeah. And say thank you. And it became mm-hmm. Siegel's, you know, club of nice people. But mm-hmm. when I said it to one nurse, um, I mean, one secretary at the desk, she said, why do you want to know my name? I said, you're the only person who's ever asked because everybody else thinks they did something wrong and I'm going to report them. I said, I want to give you a gift. She said, sit down. <clears throat> I said, you have a nice effect on everybody. She said, yeah, when I took this job, I hated it. I couldn't stand working in the hospital with the doctors and nurses. I didn't mind the patients, but the doctors and nurses were a problem. So Mm -hmm. I went back to the front office, and I said, I'm going home. I quit. I'm not going to work here. And they said, you can't quit. You have to give two weeks' notice. It's in your contract. She said, okay, two weeks. She said, I got up every day miserable for two weeks. The last day I got up happy, and I went to work happy. And I noticed something. All the people around me were happy. So I didn't Mm. quit. I decided to come in happy. Uh, And that's something else, you see, I learned. Mm -hmm. You want to be happy? Decide to be happy. Mm. You know, or change. You either change your life or you change your attitude. But you're the one who's in charge. It isn't the Mm. other people who make you unhappy. It's you and how you react to all of them. And I think that's the end. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's like reminding doctors the power of hope, the power yeah. of of joy, the power of love, the power of vulnerability, yeah, the power incredible. of suggestion. I mean, yeah. again, you see, when people start living their life, you know, one lawyer, well, the Bible even tells us he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who's willing to lose his life will save it. When your parents are telling you what they want, and you give up your life to make them happy. And then you learn you got a few months to live. You quit making your parents happy and you start making yourself happy. Mm-hmm. So you're a lawyer. You learn you don't have much more time. What do you do? You close your office, you get your violin, and you get a job in an orchestra. Because what you wanted to do when you were a kid is play a violin. And a few years later, he's got a job in the orchestra, and he's doing fine. Mm. Yeah, multimillionaire in Florida. See, I know who are survivors, the people who drive you crazy mm-hmm. to see you. And his mm. son drive me nuts. You got to talk to my father. He's down in Miami. I got to talk. I said, all right, I'm coming down there to lecture. 
I'll meet with you and your father. We'll have a meal together. So we met them. And we talked. And it turned out he owned a big business, multi-million dollars, you know, told he has five months to live and blah, blah, blah. So I talked to him about changes in life and everything. Then I'm back in Miami, I don't know, maybe six or seven months later, and he said, I'm going to introduce you. So he showed up. It's a big church we were speaking in. And um, I looked at him, and he's dressed in sort of baggy, saggy kinds of clothes. You know, I thought he'd come in a suit and a tie and look nice for this group. Hmm. So after he introduced me and I spoke, I went over to him. I said, how come you're dressed like that? He said, look, when they tell you you have a couple of months to live, you cancel the dress code at work. (laughs) He said, I told all my employees, I don't give a damn what you wear when you come to work. And he lived for over five and a half years before Mm -hmm. he died. Mm -hmm. And he really affected the hospital Mm because they're all so sure he's going to die in a couple of months and what the hell Siegel going to accomplish. He and living for five and a half years changed their attitude towards patients and cancer. So mm-hmm. I'd say that to everybody. I don't know how long I'll live, but I know when I'm tired, I'll stop. And mm-hmm. I've had some personal experiences. I'm not going to stop and talk about each one, but I had a near-death experience as a four-year-old choking to death on a toy. Um, and I was upset that I didn't die because it was really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to be out of your body. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody asked me over the phone, why are you living this life? And I went into a trance and had a past life experience. And I may add, I killed with a sword in a past life, and that's why I'm a surgeon. And this one, I'm sure, is a big part of it. To help and there's a words the and swords thing again, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. When our kid brought that in, I really felt he must have been connected to me in the past life to do that. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were in the past life. And by our getting married, we resolved the conflict between our two families that we were uh, fighting over. Uh, you know, I mean, it mm-hmm. it, it just. Um, I read a story, and that's when I wondered why that story was so interesting to me. It was about a man who sold his property, and the guy who bought it was plowing the fields and hit something, opens it up, and it's it's a metal box filled with treasures. So he tells the guy, hey, I found something on your land. He says, it's not my land. You bought it. And they're arguing, see, who it belongs to. And a third guy comes along and says, what the hell are you fighting over, this gift here? Um, and he says, well, look, you got a son, you got a daughter. Tell them to get married and give them this as a gift. That will solve your problem. And I really felt that my wife and I getting married was the gift to our families of um, that. Yeah. And I really feel that it happened. My past life was in Ireland, that I was an Irish, uh, you know, knight, so to speak, fighting that. And I'll tell you why, and then I promise i got to stop <laughs> and walk the dog. But oh, um, Notice I'm it, not stopping here. Yeah. There was an Irish woman who was in our cancer group, and she became pregnant. And one day I get a phone call. Dr. Siegel, what is it? I'm in premature labor. I'm going to have a miscarriage. I'm really so depressed. Could you come over and talk to me at the hospital? So I went over to talk to her, and her hospital room was so depressing, I realized they're making her abort, if you know what I mean. 
I mean, yeah. they're making her feel so depressed. She's never going to be able to stop or heal. So I screamed at everybody, get out of here. Get out of this room. They all looked at me like, who is he? What the hell is... But I scared them all. So they all ran out of the room. And then I said to her, look, we're going to do a meditation. You're going to talk to your uterus. And we went through a meditation where we sent her uterus messages, you know, about wanting to have the baby, to stop contracting, take a rest, and so forth and so on. And all the contractions stopped. Her labor stopped completely Mm. in about, say, 10 or 15 minutes. And then I let everybody back in the room. Mm. And it was like, it was a miracle. Mm -hmm. Then a few months go by and she delivered a normal... Beautiful. And I got a phone call. Dr. Siegel, yes, what is it? I had a baby, and it's a boy, so we're going to name him after you, but Mm. we're Irish, so we're calling him Brady. Mm. And I really feel so many ways I've been connected Mm. to the Irish. You know, and that Irish made the road rise to meet you. Mm-hmm. May the wind be always at your back. Yep. The sunshine warm upon your face, mm-hmm. and the rain fall gently upon your fields. And mm-hmm. God hold you in the palm of His hand until we meet again. Yeah. That has always touched me. And as I said, we've been to Ireland, and I love it. All mm-hmm. right. Now I will stop. Oh, thank you, Dr. Bertie Siegel. I can barely wait to pass this on to all the nurses and doctors who have their heart and their work, but don't know exactly how magical and medicinal it is. Thank you for bringing that such life. And we will talk again soon about love. Thank you. Take care. Yes. Love is immortal and makes all things immortal. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dear doctors and nurses, this is a postscript to this wonderful program. If you stuck around this long, I do so want to say thank you for all the human beings you have impacted, families, neighbors, and the patients directly. And we want to be there to help you because as you shepherd people into wellness or into passing, we want to be there for you too so that you can always stay true to your heart, to your love, to what you have to give that's so much beyond even the medicinal expertise that you also offer. So please do feel free to contact us and be a part of our recovery program for healthcare workers that are working with trauma. And the links are on the program. Thank you for listening, and we wish you all the very best.